0: this week at Hope Point.
1: You know, I think that maybe the believers in this uh, first century were asking, you know, how could it be true in Psalm 2 and Revelation 1? If Jesus is the ruler of the world, of all the kings, how is it possible that it was a king who ruled over Jesus and put him to death? But because of his great desire to establish a kingdom of forgiven people, before he ruled, he had to die. Jesus Christ so loves you that He chose to lay on a cross before He sat on a throne.
0: Whether you live in the first century or the 21st century, our heart finds comfort in knowing that every aspect of this world is controlled by a King who is supremely powerful and infinitely loving. In the opening words of Revelation, the Bible reminds us that Jesus has conquered death and is ruling over all the kings of history. Yet He is such a loving King that before He sat on His throne, He laid on a cross so that His spilled blood could forgive every sin of all who follow him. For those who feel homeless in this world, Jesus says, you have a place in my kingdom. For those who feel their life has no purpose, Jesus says, I find pleasure in every sacrifice you make because you love me as a savior and king. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word.
1: At the end of the service today, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You might call it communion from the tradition you grew up in. It's the ordinance that Jesus instituted on the last night of his earthly life with his disciples, giving them bread and wine, telling them that there was a reason for this ordinance. 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way, he after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Also do this in remembrance of me. So the most important thing you can ever do in life is to remember Jesus Christ, who he was as a person and what he did as a savior. And I don't know of a passage in all of scripture that's better than toward the end of the Bible, the first chapter of the book of Revelation, to paint a picture that will, I think, stir our hearts to enjoy the Lord's Supper. Verse 4, Revelation 1, grace and peace to you from who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. As you can see in John's opening words to that suffering church in, in, in Revelation, he opens with a description of the Trinity. When he says God is who is and who was and who is to come, he's speaking about the Father. God who created history, who created time, matter, and space. A God who is on every page of history. He's the writer and director of this play called Life. And he's not only on every page of history, he's on every page of your history just as he was standing beside Moses at the Red Sea, he's standing beside you at your Red Sea today, just as he was with Daniel in the lion's den, he's with you facing whatever persecution he is, who was and is and is to come. The reference to the seven spirits at the end of verse 4 is simply a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, The book of Revelation makes use of a lot of imagery, and here the Holy Spirit is described With the perfect number seven to describe that the Holy Spirit is everywhere, is in all things, at all times, in all places, everywhere He is at work, bringing about the Father's redemptive plan to fruition. And then Jesus Christ is described in three ways in these opening verses in Revelation. And basically, Jesus, we learn three things about Him. He is, I think we're gonna learn three things about Him. He's a leader who never failed. He's a martyr who conquered death, and he's a king who truly reigns. And since we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, I want to focus on those three realities um, for the first half of the message. He's a leader who never failed. John calls Jesus in Revelation 1-5 the faithful witness. In a world that constantly invites us to quit on God, how wonderfully encouraging it is to see Jesus Christ described as somebody who is... Perfectly faithful. Never said the wrong thing. Never the wrong thought. Never the wrong reaction. Never the wrong strategy. He was never at the wrong place at the wrong time. Always did the right thing. Faithful. I like the word faithful describe Jesus even better than the word perfect. Because you think about perfection as something you're born with, but faithful is something you acquire only after going through a lifetime of. Of trials, So you could say that Jesus was born perfect, but he died faithful. It's really difficult to find a more beautiful adjective than you could want to be said of your life. It is the most beautiful adjective of Christ's life. Success is being faithful to God's agenda for your life. That's all success is. Everything else is a failure. Christ was successful not because he was admired by man, which he wasn't, But because he was faithful to God, he is the faithful witness. When the Apostle Paul wanted to stir Timothy with courage to remind him to remain in his position as pastor there in the city of Ephesus that was opposing his message, he reminded Timothy of how faithful Christ was when he stood before the great power of Governor Pilate. He said to Timothy, this is Paul to Timothy in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what he's talking about. Jesus Christ was standing before governor Pilate. Pilate asked him. You're on the trial of your life because you claim to be a king. Is that true? And Jesus responded with the good confession. So courageous. Pilate, you're right in saying I'm a king. For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. You need to always remember that Jesus Christ was crucified for that statement right there. He was never crucified. He was not crucified for anything he ever did. He wasn't crucified because he loved. He crucified because he spoke truth. He was faithful to tell the truth until the end. And the apostle John, who captures this memory in John 18, he's the one that reminds us of this faithful God when he says in verse 5 of Revelation, it's the same author of both books, he is the faithful witness. What was Christ's mission in life? To persuade every cynic and rebel? No. Jesus Christ's mission in life was to be faithful, to speak what God had told him to say. I've always asked, you know, uh, I've been asked hundreds of occasions when I say something that's controversial. Somebody will say, did you hear anything about that in email this week? Or I might post something on social media that's not overly well received. And... Uh, people say, well, did you think about before posting that? And I said, nope, I didn't. Because the only thing I've got control over in life is my faithfulness to God. I can't control anybody's reactions. Just can I say what he has said? Can I be true and be a faithful witness like, like Jesus? I'll tell you what's happening now in our in our culture. Christians are being told by the adversary, the great adversary of The enemy of our souls, be quiet so you can be regarded as loving. And what the enemy is really saying is be quiet while I destroy culture. And so a lot of Christians are buying into that. In the name of love, I'll be quiet. Jesus Christ was not quiet, he was a faithful witness. I want to be faithful to God. I want to be faithful to you. But my hope is not in my faithfulness. My hope is in His faithfulness. God accepted the cross as a sacrifice for sin because every moment before the cross, Jesus was faithful. We're going to go to heaven because of His faithfulness, not ours second description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 is he was a martyr who conquered death. He just he was not just a leader who never failed. He was a martyr who conquered death. John describes Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. In other words um, there are going to be many other people who rise from the dead in victory because Jesus did it first is what he's saying and, This is exactly what Paul would later say in the book of Revelation. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits. Same thing as we just saw. Firstborn, firstfruits, same thing. Firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. Um, In the Old Testament, there was a holiday called firstfruits. Firstfruits. And it was a big deal, a lot of celebration because it was at the beginning of the harvest when little green things, plants started coming out of the ground. Everybody got real excited because they knew that more green things were coming out of the ground. Little harvest meant big harvest. So Jesus Christ rising from the grave meant that many through the years would also rise from the dead. Death can hold no one who is holding on to Christ. He is the first fruits of many. He's the firstborn of many who will rise from the dead. In fact, Jesus was so, he wanted to so encourage us about his ability to conquer death which is just phenomenal when you think about You know, death is so much on our minds the past year and a half with COVID that he was so able to conquer death that in his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ actually raised three people from the dead before he himself was raised. It's interesting, isn't it? The widow's son in the village of Nain, Jairus' daughter, and of course the most famous of all the resurrections of mortals was Lazarus. And so he raised these people from the dead not to tell you that everyone you pray for will live, that everyone will conquer disease, but He wanted to show you the power that is His and that is given to all who believe that He can raise people from the dead just as you are able to raise your sleeping child in the morning. It's that easy for Him. But the reason that Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead, the reason why... That's what John calls him, the firstborn from the dead, is because Jesus was the first man, this is important, to ever rise from the dead who would never experience death again. Because it is interesting that all three of those people that Jesus resuscitated, revived, resurrected in the Gospels, they had to die again. And I always often wonder how strange it must have felt for Lazarus the second time round. Because you and I don't know what it's like to die, but he did. And so he say, here it goes again. (laughs) Yet, just think how also going into that process, how much he was filled with hope because he knew something that nobody else ever knew. As soon as you die, you hear the voice of Jesus say, come forth. It's a strange, wonderful feeling that those People felt they knew that Jesus would rise them, raise them from the dead. And third, Jesus is described here as a king who truly reigns. He's not just a leader who never failed and a a martyr who conquered death, but as a king who truly reigns, verse 5, Jesus is called the ruler of the kingdom or the kings of the earth. Now, this had to be encouraging for those in first century Rome because they were oppressed, Um, by the people of the world and they were oppressed by the state government. They were oppressed by kings and here John says, no, no, no. The King Nero is not the strongest force on earth. There is one who is stronger. Jesus is the king of all the kings of the earth. This was hinted at in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. Psalm 2, why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth? See, there they are again, same as in Revelation. The kings of the earth take their stand against, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one, which would be Christ. And they say, let us break their chains and throw off their locks, their fetters. So these verses show what is happening in the world now from the people of the world and from the government that rules over the world. Humanity's attempt to throw off divine authority. It's it's what's happening as never before. When the Bible says the nations conspire, the Hebrew word is the picture of 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 a bucking, a horse trying to throw off its rider. And the wonderful thing about Psalm 2, it shows us that God is not intimidated, no matter how hard all the nations of the world buck. Psalm 2, the one enthroned in heaven, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and then he rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king. On Zion, my holy hill. So basically what you have in Psalm chapter 2 is an ancient meeting of the United Nations. And all the nations of the world hating divine authority and trying to devise a plan to get rid of God. And look what is happening while all of the people of the world are conspiring against Jesus he's not pacing back and forth in heaven's throne room of what am I going to do and he's not being rushed off to some undisclosed location to keep him safe he is where he's always been on his throne this is the purpose of the writing of the book of revelation And there on his throne, he's watching every star collapse in all the galaxies, every wave crash on the shores. He's overseeing every red red blood cell that flows through your veins. And he's hearing every tongue that plots evil against his name and against his people. And he will determine who has power to take one more step in life his decision. And that's why the Lord laughs. God laughs. In other words, this is a joke that God does not think is funny. (laughs) That's, That's how you need to read it. It's not funny to rebel against God. But what is amusing to God is that he sees mankind whom he has given power to even step one foot, that that world thinks that it can take enough steps to actually step into heaven and take over the throne of God. That's what he laughs at. The arrogance. The reason why rebellion against God is not funny is because it is rebellion against one who is precious to God. Serve the Lord with fear and Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son. Or he will be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. If anybody ever needed to hear that, it was the church in Rome. The church throughout the Roman Empire. They were suffering great persecution by the power of the state. They needed to hear that the state was not in control of their life. Maybe some of you need to hear that as well. So after John tells us the three things about who Christ is, he tells us four things that Christ has done. They're found in these verses. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So four things in those verses about what Jesus' work has done. Number one thing, first thing he wants you to know is he loves you. To him who loves us, Revelation 1.5. Just, it's a good verse to hear again, isn't it? To him who loves us. You know, last week I told you the most important thing you could use your tongue for is to say, God, help me love you more. I want to challenge that, maybe equate it now with, I mean, even Jesus was, you know, when they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, let me give you two. So, so the two greatest things you can use your tongue for, help me love you more. And number two, God, help me celebrate how much you love me. That's life. You got to get there to him who loves us. It's especially needful to remember God loves me when you're facing a crushing, painful trial. God loves me. The King loves me. So easy to forget that God loves me. It's it's, it's fine to know that God is powerful. I mean, we never doubt that one, do we? I mean, it's like sometimes we almost fear that. I mean, storms and You just need to remember in the midst of that power, his his love is equal to his, his power. They needed to be reassured that in all things painful, God was lovingly leading them to the end, to his kingdom. So that's really the question I want to answer right now is how do you know in the middle of a painful trial how do you know God loves you? John answers that with the next characteristic asking, of Christ. Um, how he releases you from true, judgment. Uh, this uh, is how could know, it be true in Psalm us. 2 and Revelation 1? If Jesus Revelation is the 1, 5, ruler of the world, of all the kings, his, how is it possible his, that it was a king who ruled over blood. Jesus and put him to death? To Jesus on the cross. If Jesus is in charge, how could someone else have been in charge the day that he died? In their thinking. Christ had the right to come and rule that way if he wanted. I'll never be opposed. It's, in fact, it was a, it's what all of his followers wanted him to do, come and reign in power and throw down. But because of his great desire to establish a kingdom of forgiven people, before he ruled, he had to die. Jesus Christ so loves you that he chose to lay on a cross before he sat on a throne. His first act as king was not to rule. His first act of king was to to die so that he could free us from sin by his blood. The word free is interesting here. It comes from a Greek word, which means to lift a chain off of someone or to unlock a chain off of someone. Sometimes you look at uh, you know freedom from our uh, by the blood of Christ. You sometimes you say, "Well, I'm being the stains are being removed." But here, this is more of a weight being removed. And I think one of the great weights that people deal with, maybe in this room, certainly in this city and nation and world, is the weight of guilt. I just I, I'm so guilty. I feel so guilty because of all the things I've done. Surely I have out the patience of Christ. And the message of the cross and the blood of Jesus is you cannot out his willingness to forgive sin. I was in the yard yesterday and we have this, you know, it's a, every, every year it's like, you know, God shows out at fall in some way or another. World. This, in, in our yard this year, this is the tree that's showing out. It's just like, it's stunning, it's bright, and obviously no way to capture it on a picture, and you have those in your, your you may have driven. But I, I sent, Lisa was feeling horrible, hacking up some germ all weekend, and so I am like in the backyard, she can't get out, can't enjoy, so I decided, well, you know, I sent her the picture in the backyard of, of our favorite tree, and I just something corny. I said, "Just want to remind you, Jesus will never leave you." And um, <laughs> but as I, you know, as I looked at that, as I looked at that tree, what I really saw was this: that tree is most beautiful in its dying. The love of God was never more beautiful, the person of God was never more beautiful in the dying of Christ. That's when you really saw, what does it mean for you to be loved? And when I was looking at that tree, I was also listening to the Holy Spirit because I too am like you and plagued by guilt and plagued by how many times can I continue to repeat this mistake How many times can I let my flesh overrule my my life? And I'm looking at the tree and it's as if God said, I am willing to forgive you as many times as there are leaves on that tree. And when that tree is out of leaves, I have plenty more trees. And I have plenty more forgiveness. Plenty more forgiveness however you would measure the capacity of the blood of an infinite God is how much forgiveness he has for you third thing that Christ has done he gives us a place the Bible says that he has made us to be a kingdom when I hear that phrase kingdom I think of I think of a place. I think of, wow, um, I'm invited uh, to a place. I'm included. Um, I have a home. um, A home that cannot be lost by a storm. um, A home that cannot be vandalized by a thief. And a home that cannot be taken by a bank. I'm part of a kingdom. Like When the lights go out of history, every kingdom will fall except his kingdom. And I got a place in that kingdom. If you want to know what missionaries do, they travel around the world. Brazil, Uganda, Russia, China, India, Pakistan, France, you name it. And they ask people, would you like to be part of an eternal kingdom because yours is on the way down? That's what they do. They ask people, would you want to be a part of Christ's kingdom and live forever? with the king. Fourth and final thing that Jesus does. He gives us a purpose. Love how John says this to him who has made us to be a kingdom and priest. We're not just in a kingdom, but we are in pre we're priests who serve in that kingdom. Two different two different things you probably don't use the word priest a lot but really this is what's happening today a priest is speaking to priests he's made everybody to be a priest will was, was what do you really mean by that well in the old testament not everybody was priest just a small group of people were priest most people were excluded from being a priest they were not qualified to be a priest, so they couldn't serve as priests. Well, everything in the Old Testament was written to create for us a hunger for the New Testament and an appreciation that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, all of us have been given the ability to serve God uniquely as as priest, you need to understand this. You've not just been invited into this big, massive kingdom where you're number two million outstanding, and you just came in the door. You are the personal assistant of the king. Like he knows you and has assignments for you. You're his servant, his priest. Uh, this past year, um. um Don Wilton, who many of you know as the pastor down the road at um, at First Baptist uh, Spartanburg, he released a book, an interesting book uh, called "Saturdays with Billy," and it was it's really his story of his friendship with the the greatest evangelist in the history of the church, befriending a local pastor. Um. Wilton says in the book, he said, I will never understand why Billy Graham invited me to be his, have a personal friendship with him. He said, but this is how it happened. He said, in the afternoon after I preached my first sermon at First Baptist years ago, I got a call on the other end of the phone. He said he thought it was a joke at first, but it turned out to be the voice of the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. And it was Billy Graham. He said, would you come see me and Ruth? So, a few weeks later, he drove up to Black Mountain, pulled off the road, began driving up that two mile road up to the entrance, and then he rode through this, came to this massive rustic gate that's not totally rustic. It's very technologically equipped. You have to have a card to swipe to get in. And he had that card. So, he went through the gate, and then he began to drive, and he knew that in just a few minutes he was going to meet Billy Graham. I mean, at his home, he'd met him before. Um, so he drove up, and there in front of the, the log cabin that overlooks the valley and overlooks Black Mountain was standing Ruth Graham in a casual dress and Billy standing there in blue jeans. And almost in unison, they said to, to, to Don, Welcome to our home. Earlier in their relationship, Don called him Mr. Graham. And, uh, and and Graham said to him one day, he said, I, I, I need you to call me Billy. And uh, Don said, I just couldn't get there. So I met him halfway and I called him Brother Billy. And so he did that for 15 years uh, every Saturday, almost, almost every Saturday. Drive up to Black Mountain. There he would gather with the Grahams and... Sometimes, many times, just himself and Billy Graham, they would talk and take walks, and sometimes they would just sit in front of the TV and watch a, a Saturday afternoon golf match, and he said, but all the time they talked, Billy, he said, the need of the nations to come to Jesus was always in the voice, always the centerpiece of their conversation. Billy, he said over and over again, Billy would say, the whole world needs Jesus, So here's the point of the story. What a cool thing for Billy Graham to say, would you be my friend? Your service and friendship could be of use to me. In a much greater way, think about what Jesus Christ has made possible for you. The God that Billy Graham preached about for 60 years has been alive for more than 60 trillion years and invites you to his home, into his kingdom. The gate opens for you by your faith in the blood of Christ, and you drive through that gate, that gate, And God the Father and the Spirit and the Son say, Welcome home. Call me Father. The mountain that Billy Graham lived on overlooking the Valley of Black Mountain, that mountain was created by God who died on a cross so that you could come into His kingdom. You're not just in the kingdom, you're a priest to the king. You serve him, personal assistant to the king of the universe. Everything you do matters to him. Everything you do through Jesus' name is a pleasure to him. Some of you might be asking, well, how can I serve God? Well, let me return to the whole priest thing. It was really random in the Old Testament. The only way that a priest could ever give anything to God that was pleasing to him is they had to sacrifice an animal and then they would bring the blood of that animal and then God would say, I accept your sacrifice. And there are many verses I could have chosen, but this is, will help you understand how the priest did it. They will be a, a burnt offering to the Lord together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, an offering made by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. So every time they brought a sacrifice, By blood, it was acceptable to God. It was an aroma that was pleasing to Him. The sacrifice was accepted as something God enjoyed. So how does this relate to you? Well, whenever you bring any sacrifice to Jesus Christ, the King, when you bring it to Him through faith in His blood, whatever you bring, whatever you've done this week, today, those who are holding babies, teaching children, running sound equipment, holding doors, making coffee... Distributing the Lord's supper elements, the youth who did that—all of it's pleasing to the King. It's an aroma, fragrance that is pleasing to Him. We say, "Well, how can I? How can I? I want to do something that pleases God. You are about to. You've already done it, but now I think you're about to realize it more than ever. You're about to sing to Him." Hebrews thirteen fifteen through Jesus, therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. There's the sacrifice he, that's the sacrifice God most loves is the fruit of lips that confess his name. And you're about to give, given an opportunity to confess the name of Christ to the Lord's Supper. Several years, many years ago now, I returned home from a speaking engagement And I had obviously told my—I had called my wife, and uh, I—I told—I called my wife and told her I'm headed home. I'm. She always wants to know where I'm. I said, Here, I'm at the 7-Eleven, about to turn into. So my daughter Anna was young. She was a little girl then, and so they knew I was coming. So I pulled into the driveway, and there was Anna sitting on the back of a car, with a sign that says, "I love my daddy." You know, there's the greatest words I'll, I, you know, I could possibly hear. But that's what you're about to do as the band leads us to sing in a moment, is to say, I love my Father. I love my King. And when you say that through Jesus Christ, He receives it with delight. And everything that you ever do for Him that is it's given to Christ is pleasing to Him. Do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.